0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Tofer, Principal Architect of Tofer Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer@toferarchitecture.com. at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Hilton Juden to talk about his book, Architecture, State Modernism, and Cultural Nationalism in the Apartheid Capital. Hilton is an architect and director of postgraduate architecture at the School of Architecture and Planning at Vitz University. Uh, Hilton, thank you so much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show.
1: And thank you for having me,
0: Brian. Oh, anytime. Now, so before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Okay, as you said, um, uh, I'm currently teaching and directing the postgraduate um, architecture uh, program at Vitz uh, University. We have a sizable architecture school, and I've been doing that for about the last eight years. Um, I'd mentioned to you that I had studied, in fact, in the States at Cornell University, not far from you. Uh, you probably know it well. Uh, this was in the 80s. And I'd done my uh, B architecture uh, degree there. And at that time, I had uh, probably, like many people, left or thought about leaving the country. But as you know, in the, uh, by 1990, there were enormous changes with the uh, unbanning of ANC and the release of Mandela and like uh, some people, I looked so forward to going back and I did so and that uh, early part were the kind of um, massively transforming years leading up to the first democratic elections in '94. and I began practicing as an architect working with a group called Plan Act and um, uh, some small architectural practices mostly in the issues of housing and uh, urban development and that those early projects and that time uh, of tremendous change um, uh, also obviously uh, in, in in architecture was fraught with so many issues. The sudden confrontation, I think, with the uh, the horrific disparities in the country, the the the, the clear um, remnants that we were living in of segregation. And I began a project there, which looked to in a way um, expose. Uh, some of those um, uh, very differences in terms of the governmental and state planning behind it. And so at that stage, with everything in a way in turmoil, I managed to get permission to um, exhibit many of the state documents around apartheid. And that was one of my first experiences with dealing with both the archives and with um, a kind of um, display of public knowledge of them. It was called Setting Apart, and I, I held it, although I didn't uh, uh, wasn't at that time associated with interviews. I, I held it at Wits University, um, and we did a, a, f- a film workshop where we interviewed people, and at the same time we got permission from the state archives to display some of those documents around apartheid, which ranged from you know the the, the planning and development of Soweto and other townships around Johannesburg um, and also many of the case case letters to uh, government around forced removals and some of the planning around segregation. The idea was to expose and show people that uh, the city around them was very much a planned and thought-out city. And that, that was an early, uh, 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 in, as I said, uh, way of um, sharing this kind of public knowledge. And then I went on later uh, to continue in practice. I worked on the Mandela Museum in Kunu, which was an important state museum at that time, a small-scale project. Um, and then um, in the late 90s, I was um, commissioned by the Netherlands Architecture Institute to do a um, what started off as a, a, a kind of retrospective of architecture in South Africa. I turned into a much larger research project where I worked with um, uh, 40 or, or more um, writers and architects and uh, photographers uh, across the country in developing a project um, that I called Blank, Architecture, Apartheid and After, which was about an, a, a kind of exposure of um, uh Many of the similar things, as I said, the documentation, but also looking then at buildings themselves and uh, the display of them and the larger cultural uh, issues around the built environment. And that happened in um, uh, Rotterdam in 1998 and then in Berlin the following year, and then it returned to South Africa in 2000. Uh, I continued to practice and then took up a position teaching in the postgraduate uh, department of the school, which I continue to do to this day. So the book uh, itself then is a culmination in many ways of that early research.
0: Very interesting. And so you touched on quite a bit on kind of my next question, but I think I'd like to ask you a little further. You know, often when I'm speaking with authors, I am curious, you know, in such a big field of architecture, what leads them to write about a specific subject and a specific area? And I do think you touched on that a lot, but I still want to ask, you know, what led you to write specifically about, you know, apartheid, and then what also helped kind of determine your, your your choice location that you studied in the book?
1: So, I mean, it is an interesting question because it seems obvious, you know, and uh, as, a, as an architect from South Africa, you know, the first thing you would be studying is, uh, um, I think some of, uh, it would be apartheid. Maybe historically one of the, uh, you know, the the really severe uh I would say, uh, how can I say, um, outcomes of architecture uh, in a way enforced on uh, a population. So not just segregation, but segregation on the on a national scale, on a scale of really separating out all people, um, and then building over centuries, you know, f- through colonialism into apartheid. Uh, totally divided cities, the extent to which doesn't really or hadn't really existed anywhere in the world, uh, even in the, in the States. Uh, you imagine here a totally built environment where everybody had separated. So in one sense, it's obvious. But as a, as a practicing architect, not an urbanist or theorist or at that time anything associated with uh, historical studies, as a practicing architect, going back to my early studies, uh, even in the states, I was always fascinated by some of the plans that I used to see. Initially, of, for example, concentration camps or you know, slave plantations, and imagine, you know, and as you know as an architect, when you sit down and look at a plan, um, and you work out a plan, and as an architect, you know how much time you spend thinking through the the the, the kind of manifestations of space and it it. it It fascinated me and, in a way, horrified me to think of all that um, kind of time people spent thinking through those things, planning out the segregation, you know, placing people in particular, in many ways, violent environments, and actually planning it as an architect. And I think that kind of early fascination uh, led me to, you know, many of the archival studies or uh, process of interviewing to try to get at, you know, how do people separate out these things in their mind? How do they sit there with the kind of care, you know, architects take on planning out space and to do it for, yeah, what often are, yeah, quite not only troubling, but, yeah, horrifying uh, elements. So that was an early fascination. And going into the archives, you begin to see the kind of massive, initially bureaucracy, but later all those things, planning, thinking, um, that actually lies behind it, you know, the everyday occurrences of how things come to pass in the city, you know, complaints by neighbours about uh, nearby things, uh, the different interest groups uh, that are behind, and then government policy and uh, fanaticism around uh, whether it's separating our people or... Um, you know, all those kind of frightening things and how they slowly manifest through legislator and uh, operations of bureaucracies to the architect, uh, him or herself, actually sitting and designing. So that's a little bit the kind of uh, deeper background behind some of yeah my interest in those things.
0: And that's great. And so uh, that's very interesting. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> And so, you know, you actually, I want to touch about something that you talked about earlier. Uh, you talk, you actually used the term forced removal. And so, while reading the book, it's interesting because a lot of the books and a lot of people I talk to, politics and architecture are always, they always seem intertwined, but I guess they're not talked about as overtly as you might think. It, sometimes it seems very subtle. And I, the reason I come back to forced removals is, you know, the idea of, you know, planning kind of screwing over the lower income areas or certain minority groups. It's not a new concept, but it often seems somewhat subtle and kind of guys, Whereas in your book, you know, and there's you you actually mentioned policy on you know, like the Group Areas Act, etc., and even the idea of forced removal. I it, I don't have a better way to say it. It seems much less subtle. It is very obvious what is what is purposely trying to be done. So when you mention horrifying act. I guess the question I'm trying to get to here is if you could kind of walk us through a little more the fact that it does seem like specifically what you're talking about in your book is it is, I keep saying subtle, it's much less subtle than it might be done here in the United States, the segregation and discrimination.
1: Well, I think there is, a, there is certainly a violence in the States. If you go back to the plantations and then even more recently, you know, with the redlining of areas and you think of the implications over generations uh, of families, uh, you know, segregated and then uh, in a way um, uh, sort of forced into ghettos and all that implies, you know, where you can live and where you can be schooled and what job opportunities. So, you know, if you run it through like that, you, you see the enormous implications for most people. The violence in South Africa is, yeah, not subtle at all. You know, it uh, was blatant and brutal, and the relationship to architecture was, you know, not an obscure one. You know, it was directly employed, and I think many people, yeah, their first instinct is to say, you know, that, that uh, architecture is political in the, in the in a in a kind of formal sense. You know, one building differentiating from another, but. If you go through it in a deeper sense, what gets built, and why, and how, and for who, uh, and which architects do it, and then then and then you go into the actual spatial demands of uh, particular architectural things, you see the tremendous relationship between those things. It's it's often shocking how it comes down to you know. Uh, Uh, personal choices uh, of uh, particular people, sometimes officials, sometimes bureaucrats, but very often a public. In this case, um, if you look at, uh, we talked about forced removals, but before group areas actually played itself out, there were hearings around the country. And many of those those early documents are the ones that are most shocking, but in a way most familiar. It starts with like uh, neighbors complaining about uh, the noise of uh, people nearby because You know, uh, uh, in many of the cities, uh, uh, people lived alongside each other, although in in, in kind of segregated neighborhoods. neighborhoods. But the forced removals came with actually the the removal of people that weren't welcome, black people, in the inner inner parts of the city. And they were then moved out uh, uh, forcibly to townships. But like I was saying, uh, it didn't just come from officials deciding on particular areas uh, around that. But it started from minor things like uh, people complaining, uh, um, in a way informing on neighbours, and then government officials then taking this up and uh, uh, turning it into into policies. And uh, I, I think that's the violence that's often um, uh, uh, mitigated by uh, uh, like deeper histories, you know, rather than. Uh, uh, um, in a way, drilling down into the bureaucracy on those things. And, and many of those things I, I think I try to take up to try um find how um, the act of architecture or how architects, um, in a way, engage in the environment, how deeply related it often is to some of um, these uh, more subtle public uh, 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 relationships.
0: And so you mentioned bureaucracy and kind of, you know, again, we were talking about government the whole time. And so I, well, this won't be my most clever segue, but one thing that's interesting when you're looking through the book is when you're looking at pictures of the Capitol and a lot of the administrative buildings, I would have thought that I'm looking at Albany or Washington, D.C. or some other, you know, government heavy area of the United States. And of course, you know, again, I've read the book, so I understand where that came from. But could you uh, kind of walk us through a little bit this this kind of emulation of government uh, administrative buildings in the United States?
1: Okay, so I mean, uh, when you said Albany, it sounded more familiar. It has a kind of provincial capital feel to it. It's not a large um, uh, 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 city. So as and you, if you see some of the early pictures uh, from like the 1940s just before uh, the uh, nationalist government took power in 1948 and, and then many of the state changes that are talking about started happening in the 50s but if you look it was sort of a low-key provincial city although it was a capital it was uh, the, um, the uh, legislative capital of the country in uh, more or less in the center as you know parliament is in Cape Town but the legislative or the administrative capital and it became then the the, the kind of seat of um, uh, the apartheid government um so part of the 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 way the government saw it is a growing bureaucracy needed to be housed not across the city but in particular buildings and i think what i found interesting at first is why modernism you know why why that kind of international style was taken up rather than the kind of traditional classical style that you would have imagined that was either colonial or, um, I guess, in some case, fascist, you know, uh, uh, national socialist. And it was the fact that I think many of the colonial buildings were English, were part of, you know, the, uh, the original colonization by Britain uh, of South Africa up until um, more recently, those buildings were, uh, a, a neoclassical, and I think for many Afrikaners, they look to differentiate and to separate art as as South Africa became a republic. Certainly by 1960, uh, uh, from that English heritage, and this growing Afrikaner nationalism uh, uh, came about in, in in architecture through this shift in thinking to, um, in a way, showing the growing progress of this white. Um, this white regime, you know, and its relationship uh, to more, uh, to the rest of the world, I think, became important to them. And they were able to, or they looked to demonstrate it through this kind of very modern architecture. At the same time, many of the younger architects, that, or the new generation of architects, no longer wanted to do the kind of traditional, um, heavy, uh, uh, nationalist, uh, monumental kind of buildings. They were looking to emulate what. Who, those who were heroes for them at the time, like in the rest of the world, and that was Miss van der Rohe or de Corbusier, in both, um, uh, on the one hand, the, the steel and um, glass kind of construction, and on the other, the more heavy um, uh, concrete construction. At the same time, you would recognize uh, the buildings that happened in the latter part of the period that I'm talking about, by the mid-60s, as very much a brutalist heritage, like you see in uh, parts of the US and and in and a lot of Europe, and it, it happened at the same time. So they they both emulated and were part of, I guess, a global zeitgeist around those um, post-war transformations of early modernism. You know, into something uh, that took on a larger structural implication. So mega structures had more um, uh, more of an impact in the in the city required. Uh, as I would say, a growing bureaucracy, which they look to house. And in fact, they built beyond the the immediate requirements um, and very much used the buildings to kind of project, uh, both for themselves and to the outside world, a sense of a progressive, modernizing white nation in Africa.
0: Thank you very much for elaborating on that. And so, again, it, of course, when I, when I schedule these interviews, they're not scheduled with specific order in mind, but a theme that's come up in the last few books I've read is a, a figure in architecture that I am not familiar with, and I don't think many students are, but that we really should be. And so one that jumps out at me from reading the book is Norman Eaton. Again, I I can't speak for every architect and student, but I have to imagine not many, I know I personally, but I don't think a lot of us are as familiar with him as we probably should be. So I, I know that question is very vague, but could you talk to us a little bit more about Norman Eaton?
1: Okay. So Norman Eaton, yeah, probably not known really out of South Africa. There's been one monograph on him and he's one of the few probably really significant architects here uh, in developing what many would see as a regional style, you know, something very specific to both the, 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 the landscape, the country, and also uh, in many sense the national culture, white national culture, although it's never promulgated as that. And he was, I think, an interesting figure in that he was um, himself drawn to uh, uh, Africa. And it, uh, it had a particular meaning for him, and I go in a little bit into that because it's quite important. Because this idea of a, a kind of a tribalism or a, 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 an African nationalism was obviously a conflicting one for white. They had an interest uh, in being like everybody else, and in fact, Africana is like African. You know, it's a kind of a white version of African, and they looked in a way for a, a, a sense of belonging uh, on the continent and they had a deep relationship with the landscape. Uh, Most of them had been there for a number of generations, from the early Dutch settlers to the later French Huguenot settlers, all colonial settlers, Uh, and they had the particular relationship to the land, a deep one in in many senses. And uh, Eton was one of the architects who was able to take some of this love or passion for the landscape and develop it into a really distinctive architectural style, quite organic, so not unlike uh, uh, others influenced by, in fact, Frank Lloyd Wright more than uh, anyone else, rather than, say, you would imagine an altar or somebody else. But I think it, 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 it relates to a much more organic architecture. And in, in Eaton's case, it was a use of a local brick, uh, low-lying um uh, extended eaves um, many of the things that you, you in fact find in similar kind of landscapes, you know what we call an open felt landscape. Uh, with low-level trees, but uh, uh, spread out grasses. And in in the Pretoria area, that's very much the landscape. And if you imagine that mingled with his interest, uh, he travelled in Africa, particularly in Zanzibar, and he had a great interest in African architecture. And he looked in many ways to incorporate elements of those not always in what you would imagine uh, a naive sense, but actually quite a sophisticated transform- transformation. But the building I chose to focus on is one that really hasn't been, uh, one that's less known in his genre because as many other well-known buildings, some um, uh, bank buildings uh, are his most famous where he developed a, kind of a, a, a screen out of these um uh, beautiful blue uh, um, bricks that he had, ceramic bricks that he made. And so uh, that one in Durban is really well known, and he has another uh, more formal bank building in Pretoria. But it's the police building that most interested me. Again, uh, going back to what I said, I'm fascinated by architects then who are able to then take on these commissions, you know, what for many people would be more problematic or troubling commissions, in this case, the the, the national police headquarters. And uh, somebody who was deeply sensitive as an architect took on that uh, function of kind of doing a representative state building around a policing structure. And again, uh, juxtaposing those two things, a very violent, obvious um, Uh, actions of the police at the same time with this deeply sensitive architecture and imagine the two working together. And he made it in the end quite a functional building, you know, as you would imagine. But it has, uh, and I show some of those details, or I talk a little bit about some of those details that relate to his, um, uh, in a way, romance with uh, uh, Africa. And I think that's what's really interesting. Again, myself as an architect trying to imagine holding these very diverse uh, troubling, very uh, distinct uh, ideas in your head. You know, at one at, and on one hand, trying to be part of a continent, and another hand, building for a, a police that, yeah, was as you know, uh, 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 violent and controlling at that time. To yeah, to a degree, yeah, that you would see in most authoritarian states now.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I don't think our listeners realize how late it is for you where you are for this interview.
1: Not too bad. (laughs) It's nice talking. Appreciate your your interest in the book.
0: Of course. Thank you for being here. And for everyone listening, the book is Architecture, State Modernism, and Cultural Nationalism in the Apartheid Capital. Thank you for listening and have a great day.